The sixth annual Palswood Garden Storytelling Festival took place on July 22nd. KUOW's Jenny Cecil Moore spent the day there gathering tales. Here's a collection from award-winning storyteller Linda Gorham. I am thrilled and honored to be here with you today. I'm thrilled that you all came to see me and listen to my stories. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a big fan of sharing stories. If you were in any of my other, my other set today, I always say we should tell our children our stories, even if they're just anecdotes. There. Even if it's just anecdotes, because some, those, all those anecdotes turn into what makes you who you are. And my parents would tell me anecdotes over and over and over again. And finally, as a storyteller, I began to realize how important those things are to make me what I am. And we all have the crazy cousins and the crazy aunts. I remember my aunt who served pizza every Friday. I thought she was the coolest aunt in the world, you know. And, and I remember my uncle who ran around in a tracksuit, and my mother thought it was very inappropriate because he would come to Thanksgiving dinner wearing a tracksuit. My mother always fussed about that. I remember an aunt who, when she was coming, we always would, if she called and said she was coming, we would know she talked so much we had to have enough time to allow it, or we'd tell her we were busy. You know, all these little pieces of things that people tell us, and they all come together. We are all important, we are all somebody. So the pieces that my parents gave to me, I did a little extra research, and I want to share with you my I am somebody story. And I hope that while you're listening, you are beginning to think about how you can write your somebody story. I am somebody. I'm the daughter of a man who believed that dinner was to be served at 6 p.m. sharp. And each place setting was to have a fork, a knife, and a spoon, whether they were needed or not. He said that fried chicken was properly eaten with a knife and a fork. Have you ever tried eating a fried chicken wing with a knife and a fork? There was something in my family called the 1969 Fried Chicken Rebellion. It's another story. <laughs> my father told me his proudest moment was when I turned 18, and he took me to the polls to vote in my first national election. We had to get up really early. I was really complaining about that. But my father was always first in line to vote. And I'll never forget the look on his face when he stepped aside to let me, his firstborn, vote first. I am somebody. I'm the daughter of a woman who believed there were two, two things that made us for a successful marriage. One was soft feet. I'm happy to tell you I've had soft feet for all 36 years of my marriage. The other was long hair. I'm still married 36 years in spite of all of that. I am somebody. I'm the daughter of Major Henry William Bolden, Jr., who in 1946 was among five African-American graduates of Officer Candidate School in Virginia. <coughs> it was a proud moment when they were all commissioned. But that pride turned to utter disappointment when my father and the four other newly commissioned officers learned that they were not going to be able to attend the graduation party because it was held in an all-white officers club. My father told me later that the Army gave them a 44-passenger bus, and they could each take a date, and the Army gave them money to take their dates out to dinner. That's what we don't call separate but equal but I am somebody. I am the daughter of a woman who was a light-skinned African-American woman, and she married a brown-skinned African-American man in 1949. Now, back then, uh, it looked to some people like theirs was an interracial relationship. I mean, black people know we come in all colors and all shades, but many people mistook their relationship for an interracial, and that caused them a lot of grief and a lot of heartache, and they were called many names. And it was a long time before I realized the disdain my mother had for people who judged her before ever getting to know who she was. But I am somebody. I am the granddaughter of a feisty, matriarchal person, a, a woman who held her family together with values and morals and rules, just like my father, because she was the mother of my father with his rules. And that woman, when we lived with her during the year my father was in Vietnam, had us take my sisters and me, a teaspoon of cod liver oil twice a week in the wintertime. 
She said it would keep us healthy. Try moving into a seventh grade school, brand new, you don't know anybody, and you're burping up cod liver oil all day. It was like biting on, anybody ever take it? Ah, oh, you'd rather bite on the head of a dead fish, right? Tablespoon, yeah. But that's the story I have for her, and that makes me somebody. I am the granddaughter of a proud Pullman porter who carried luggage on a train and wore a navy blue suit with brass buttons and shiny shoes, and it made him feel like a million dollars. But he had to endure a lot of discrimination and trouble because of that job, because the people didn't respect him, wouldn't call him sir, wouldn't bother to find out his name, and called him and many of the other Pullman porters George rather than call them sir or their name. But that man taught me to be proud, and that ta man taught me to stand tall, and that man taught me to respect all people regardless of their color. I am somebody. I am the niece of a tireless educator. She's the one that served pizza on, on Friday. And I learned later the reason she served pizza is because she worked all week. And so she could have pizza on Friday. And my father said, your mother doesn't work. She has to do a square meal every day of the week, including Friday. But that tireless educator, when she retired after 44 years at her high school as an English teacher, had a new, there was a new wing built on the school of Ferris High School in Jersey City, New Jersey, and that new wing was named after her. I am somebody. I am the niece of a man who in 1952 won two gold medals in the Olympics for track, the 100-meter dash and the, no, the 200-meter dash and the 4-by-100-meter relay. He was supposed to also run the 100-meter dash, but he had hurt his ankle during some of the trials, and the coach wanted four men to get a chance at a, at a medal rather than him just getting the medal for the 100-meter. Two years later, he went back to Melbourne, Australia, and he won a silver medal in the 200-meter dash. I am somebody. I'm the same daughter of that same, the same niece of that same man who in 1975 had one of those medals stolen from his house. They had kept it in a safety deposit box, but every New Year's they had a New Year's Eve party, and my aunt would take them out of that box and bring them to the party to show to people and then put them back up in her bedroom, and someone went up in her bedroom and stole the silver medal. But I am somebody. I am the great-granddaughter of a full-blooded Mohawk Indian who my mother said always walked around with a red feather in her long, straight, black hair. I am somebody. I am the product of people who have been called many things, African-American, black, Afro-American, Negro, colored, slave, and much worse. I don't know all their stories, but the ones I learn, I feel it's my responsibility, as it is yours, to share. I don't know all their struggles, I don't know all their strife, but I know that they were independent, they were intelligent, they were witty, they were feverishly family-oriented, and they were devoted to doing what they could to help make this country a better country. And ironically, I am also the great-great, multi-great-granddaughter of Richard M. Stockton, proud signer of the Declaration of Independence, the very document that should have forbid slavery. I am somebody. We can all write that. Everybody here can write that. So my Uncle Andy, he's the one that walked around in a tracksuit all the time, and my mother fussed about it all the time, because you don't come to Thanksgiving dinner in a tracksuit. But once you're an Olympic star, you're an Olympic star for the rest of your life. And I think he wanted everybody to know it. I, it was clearly the highlight of his life, and I think that's kind of hard on people, because once you get that high where you're that, that revered for a few moments in time, now what? what how do you follow that? So I sat down with Uncle Andy a while back, and I said, tell me about your story. What made you run? And he said, oh, Linda, 
I don't even tell my daughter or my son that. I haven't told your cousins, but if you want to know, I'll tell you. I said, okay. He said, it was back in the 1930s. I was born in Washington, D.C., where I lived, and I was about 12 years old, and I got a, a newspaper route. And it wasn't easy. You had to get up early before school. You had to go get the newspapers. You had to sort them. You had to bind them. You had to put them in a big sack. I didn't have a car, a bicycle, he said. I had to walk my whole route. And I did that for many, many, many weeks, for a couple of years. He said every other week on Friday, I would go back through the route and collect my money. One Friday, I was about 12 years old. This was Washington, D.C. in the 30s. You all know this was a segregated place. Part of my uncle's paper route was in the what was called Negro section, and part was in the white section. He said, and I was collecting money in the white section, some boys chased me. I'm sure they didn't want me in their neighborhood. They chased me, they caught me, they beat me up, they stole my money. He said, I told myself I was never going to get beaten up and chased and robbed ever again. And I told myself nobody was ever going to catch me. And he said, I didn't even tell anybody that I got beat up. I said, how can you not tell anybody? They could do something. He said, Linda, you don't know the times. Back then, nobody was going to do anything about it, even if I could identify them. He said, so I didn't tell anybody. But what I started doing is every day after school, I would come to the house after school, do my homework. I'd look at the clock in the living room. And then I'd go outside, run around the block, come back in and look at the clock again to see how long it took me to do it. And every day I did it, I would try to beat my time. And then I would go farther and farther and faster and faster. And they did chase me again, he said. They didn't catch me because I was fast. And when he got to high school, he probably was fast. And he also said that he thinks he was naturally fast. He got to high school. He made the high school team. That was a no-brainer. The, 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 the Lincoln High School team in Jersey City, New Jersey, during the four years that my Uncle Andy was there, won county, state, regional, county, and state championships all four years. That team led by my Uncle Andy. He got a full scholarship to uh, Satan Hall University, where he ran again. He won nine out of eight outdoor titles. He ran the 60-yard um, dash, the 100-meter dash, the 200-meter dash, the 4-by-100-meter four relay, and the high jump. His longest high jump, not high jump, long jump, 24 feet, four and a quarter inches. I'm five feet tall, so it's roughly five of me. That's pretty tall. And then it was a natural for him to go to the Olympics. Everyone thought he was going to win gold in three events, the 100 meter, the 200 meter, and the four by 100 meter. He had already held the world record in the 100 meter dash by that time. So they just knew he would win. But because of the ankle injury, the, he only ran two events, and he won gold. He came back a superstar. There was articles about him. My, my aunt had five binders full of articles about my Uncle Andy. And there was a ticker tape parade in Jersey City, New Jersey, the first African-American man, and as far as my re research could tell, the only African-American man to have a ticker tape parade in Jersey City, New Jersey. They rode in a red convertible. The reason it was red is because he was colorblind, and red was the only color he could see. So they rode in a red convertible down that street, which is now called Martin Luther King Boulevard, no surprise. And um, it was a big deal. Well, when he went back in 1956, he was already a star because he had won two gold medals. And that was the year that Wilma Rudolph went to the Olympics for the first year, and she was also on the track team. She was slated to run the 100, the 200, and the 4 by 100 meter dash, a relay. I did not get to ask my uncle what his relationship was with, uh, with uh, Wilma Rudolph, because I didn't know the connection back then, and he didn't mention it when we talked about it. Hello, it's all about him, which is what he, did, he lived. So I can only imagine that Wilma Rudolph looked at him as a star and someone who already had gold and someone that she wanted to emulate. Well, how do you tell a story about someone who you've never met and you've only researched and you want to tell it in a way that maybe will make her emotional state clear to the audience. She didn't have a diary. So I thought, what if she did? So here's her story. I changed the ages a little bit just to make the whole thing flow. 
you know, storyteller's prerogative. Age four, dear diary, I'm always sick. I don't like being sick. I'm always sick. I have to sit in the house all the time and look outside and see my brothers and sisters playing. They are always playing basketball. I want to play basketball. I don't like being sick. Age five, dear diary, Dr. Coleman came by the house again. He always comes by. He is a nice man. I do like him. He has brown skin like me. But every time Dr. Coleman comes in, he looks at me, examines me, you know, and then he takes Mama into the other room. But before he does, as he's leaving, he goes, mm, mm, mm. I always know it's going to be bad news. When he takes Mom into the other room, he, they think I can't hear. Well, when I had itchy skin, he took Mom in the other room and he said chicken pox. And another time when I had itchy skin, he said measles. And another time when my neck was really sore, he said mumps. And then one time when I was really, really weak, Dr. Coleman, when he was in the room with Mama, he said scarlet fever. Mama says I shouldn't say hate, but I hate being sick. Age six. Dear diary, I'm coughing all the time, especially at night. Oh, it hurts so much when I cough. Uh, Dr. Coleman came by again. He looked at me. He shook his head. Mm, mm, mm. Then he took Mom into the other room like he always does. They can't, don't I know I can hear them? This time he said pneumonia. When Mama came out, looked like she was really upset. <sighs> Mama told me I can't go to school now. I was supposed to start school, but she says I can't because if I go to school, I might get other children sick. So I have to stay home and be taught at home. I hate being sick. Mama keeps saying, don't say hate. Age seven. Dear diary, the coughing stopped. I'm so happy. Dr. Coleman came by and he said I could go to school. I'm healthy. I'm finally healthy. No more looking out the window and listening to the radio and watching my brothers and sisters playing. Now I can go to school. Maybe I'll have friends. You know what, dear diary? I asked my mama to get me a new dress. And mama shook her head. Mama said, Wilma, you know we can't afford a new dress. You know we don't have that kind of money, but I'll make you a new dress out of this nice potato sack. You ever wear a potato sack dress? They're real itchy, and Mama says she can't afford to buy lining either. But you know what? At least I get to go to school, and at least I get a new dress. Second grade. Dear Diary, I'm seven years old. I finally started school. I'm finally beginning to make friends. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go anymore. When I got out of bed, I fell on the ground. And I looked at my leg, and my leg was all twisted, and my foot was twisted too. And I don't know what that means. And then Dr. Coleman came by, and he looked at my leg, and he, you know, mm, mm, mm. I wish you would stop doing that. Then he took Mom into the other room. They were in there a long time. I could hear Mama crying. And when they came out, it looked like Dr. Coleman had been crying too. And he sat next to me, and he held my hands, and he said, Wilma, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have polio. Well, then I started crying, too. And then he showed me something really ugly. He had a picture of a boy wearing a polio brace on his leg, and it started at his knee, and it went down to his ankle, and it was ugly. And, and Dr. Coleman said it was made of steel, and he said, he said I was going to have to wear it. And then he showed me those big old ugly brown Oxford shoes, too. I don't want to wear it. But Dr. Coleman said if he can get it for me, because Mama can't afford it, but if he can get it, I got to wear it. This is a bad day. Dear Gold Doctor, dear Diary, I got the brace. 
They have braces for people who can't afford it. That's kind of nice. And Dr. Coleman said I should be happy about that. But, but it's ugly and it's heavy. And when I go to school, now Tommy and Mary and Jonathan and Thomas, they make fun of me. They call me names, and I don't like it. They call me cripple. That's a terrible name. Mama says we have to go to the hospital every twice a week. We have to go all the way to Meharry Hospital in Nashville so I can get my legs massaged so my legs will get stronger. I don't mind. I like riding the bus with Mama. But I said to Mama, why do we have to ride in the back seat of the bus? And Mama said, that's the law. If we don't ride in the back, we could be arrested. And I told her that's not fair. And she said, I know, Wilma. I know it's not fair. And then Mama told me a story. Mama said, Wilma, when you were born, you were so pretty. And you were so tiny. You were born two months early. And I could hold you in my hand. You were such a pretty little baby. But Dr. Coleman came by when he delivered you. And he said that you needed to be in an incubator. And he told me I should take you to the hospital right away. And I took you to the hospital right here in Clarksville. But they wouldn't let me in. The lady at the door said, you know we don't treat people like you here. I'm sorry about your baby. But you should take it home. Take that little girl home and wrap her up and keep her near the oven. I hope she lives. So I did, Wilma. I wrapped you up. I took you home. I kept you as warm as I could. But that's why you're so sick, Wilma. Dear diary, I knew we can't try on shoes at their stores. I know we can't always try on hats. I know we have to sit in the back of the bus. I know we have water fountains labeled colored. I know we can get somewhere first, but we are waited on last. But I didn't know people would let me die. A little baby? Maybe if I had been in the incubator, Maybe I wouldn't have been so sick. Why are some people so mean? Dear diary, age nine, I, t I, I, I have to wear the brace every day. I can take it off at night, but I still have to wear it. But they still make fun of me. But mama keeps saying, be patient. Well, how can I be patient? I want it off, but Dr. Coleman says I can't take it off. And mama says I can't take it off. And I want to be patient. But there's one good thing. We don't have to make that 100-mile trip to Meharry Hospital anymore twice a week because now, well, Mama learned how to massage my leg, and Mama taught all my brothers and sisters how to do it too. She said, I'm lucky because I have 21 brothers and sisters. Some people say that's a lot. You think so? <laughs> Mama says, I have lots of people to help massage my leg so my leg will get strong. That's a good thing. Sometimes it hurts when they massage it, but... I don't say anything because Mama said I should be patient and Mama said I should do whatever Dr. Coleman says. But I sure want polio to go away. Age nine and a half. Dear diary, I did it. I did it all by myself. It was Sunday and everybody was in the church and the church was all full and I stood in the back and I unbuckled that brace and I took it off. And I didn't even hold the chairs. I didn't. I walked up the middle of the church aisle all by myself. And, and the people started seeing me. And they started saying, you go, Wilma. Go ahead, Wilma. Good for you, Wilma. And then others were saying, yes, Wilma, yes, Wilma. And then they all started saying, Wilma, Wilma, Wilma. And Dr. Coleman, he was there too. And he said, Wilma. And I made it all the way to the front where Mama and Papa were sitting. And I sat down next to them. And they hugged me. One day, I'm not going to have to wear this brace ever again. It was a good day. Age 10. Dear diary, Dr. Coleman said it's finally over. We can mail that brace back to Meharry Hospital at Fisk University. I don't have to wear it anymore. I still have to get massages for two more years, but I don't have to wear it anymore. Maybe now I'll be normal. Maybe now I have real friends. Maybe now I'll play basketball. That's what I really want to do. Dear Diary, 
I've been watching my brothers and sisters play basketball for 12 years. I've been looking out the window. I know how to play basketball, but the coach doesn't think I do. But the coach wanted my sister on the team. So Papa said, if you take Wilma's sister, you have to take Wilma too. I made the team. I'm going to show them how good I am. You watch. Age 13. Dear diary, all I do is sit on the bench. Three seasons and all I do is sit on the bench and watch everybody play. He's never let me start the coach. Now sometimes he'll let me play like two or three minutes and that's all. But I can't get in a rhythm. I can't show him what I've got. <sighs> he does like me. He calls me a nickname that I like and the other kids do too. He calls me Skeeter. That's because I'm so tall and so thin. I'm almost six feet tall and I weigh 80 pounds. He says I dart around a little bit, a little bit too much for him, he says. <laughs> he says he's going to start a track team. He said if I learn to run, maybe that will help my basketball. I don't like to run. <laughs> but Mama said I should try new things. So I told him if you start a team, I'll join it. Age 14, Dear Diary. I finally got to start on the basketball team. Coach says my running has helped my basketball. Guess what? I scored 32 points. And everybody in the school gym, they yelled, Wilma, Wilma, Wilma. This is the best day ever. Age 16. I have a lot to tell you, diary. I was running on the track team, and the coach from Tennessee State University said that I should join their team, their summer track team. And then when I did that, he said I was really good, and I should try out for something called the Olympics. I don't know what it is, but he said it was good. So I said I would try, because Mama says always try something new. Guess what? I made the team. I'm going all the way to Australia, Melbourne, Australia. I'm going to represent the United States on the track team. Oh, I hope I win a medal. Oh, I hope I win a medal. I hope I win a medal. I did. <laughs> Third place. <laughs> four by 100, all four of us, the team, we won, and all of us hugged. My teammates are so wonderful. We won bronze. I'm coming back. I know it's a lot of work, four more years of work, but I want to come back because I want to win a gold medal. Yeah. Age 20. Dear Diary, I won, and I won, and I won. Four gold medals in the Olympics. <sighs> Rome, Italy. 80,000 people were in the stands. American flags were everywhere. It was the first year that the Olympics was shown on TV. I learned later the whole country watched me win. And when I stood on that podium three times on the very top, all I could hear was Vilma, Vilma, Vilma. I love how they say my name. And afterward, everybody came and wanted to talk to me and shake my hand and hug me. And now, dear diary, they are calling me the fastest woman in the world. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to tell you a little bit about what happened to Wilma afterward. And I think the same thing kind of happened to Uncle Andy. She, she said they wanted to hire me for my fame, not my work. And so she ended up being a second grade teacher and a high school coach in her town of Clarksville. But she really wanted to, to, to do something and make a difference. So she was, you know, out there trying to, she ran a little bit more, but then she hung up her track shoes at age 22. She actually signed her track shoes and gave them to a young boy who had come seeking an autograph. She decided she didn't want to run anymore. And there were some government jobs that came her way but that's the ones where she said, they really didn't want me for my work. They wanted me for my fame. And the same thing happened to my Uncle Andy. When he finished his uh, Olympic career and finished running a little bit after that, he got hired by Schaefer Brewing Company in their public relations department. And 
Unfortunately for African-American people, if you got put in the public relations department, that meant you were a bit of a figurehead. You were there so they could say that they had hired you. And all I remember him doing on his job was going to parties and hosting parties and going to more parties. So I don't know if he ever really felt fulfilled in his life, but that is what happened to him. Wilma Rudolph came home to a ticker tape parade in Clarksville, Tennessee. Now this ticker tape parade was also, she had a convertible, it wasn't red as far as I know, but she insisted that if they were going to have a parade and a luncheon in her honor, that it be integrated. And that had never happened in the city of Clarksville, Tennessee. And they agreed, the, the mayor and all those people agreed. So she had the very first integrated two-mile parade and luncheon where people actually sat in the same room together, not on separate sides of the room. It was a big deal. But the very next day, she went to a restaurant in Clarksville and was turned away. <sighs> what can we say, you know? She says that her, best, her greatest accomplishment was forming the Wilma Rudolph Foundation. And um, she formed it to help young athletes, and she also formed it to help former athletes to get work, because they she realized that that was hard for them to get work after that. So um, that's, that's her story. That's her story. Okay. Any questions about the story, by the way? Or comments? Yes. Oh, boy. How did I research it? I read everything I could find on Wilma Rudolph in books, in the library. My favorite place to go, the library. My library card is always very used looking. And I um, went online. And usually when I tell this story, I have told this story in middle school and high school, I have a PowerPoint of pictures. And I show pictures of her running and pictures of my uncle running. When my uncle ran, it wasn't on TV. So the picture my, my, grand, my aunt had is priceless. You know, She gave it to me um, of him running. And the, the two gold medals, by the way, that are left, she gave one to Cousin Billy and one to Cousin Karen. And I, I couldn't get a hold of them because I, I wanted to bring them to show you guys. You know, But I couldn't. Yes? So you, you threw a lot of maybe more emotion in than there was in the research. So oh, the research has no emotion. <laughs> oh, she did. It's all legitimate, yeah. She really did look out the window, watch, listen to a radio, and watch her brothers and sisters forever and ever and ever, and she really did hate being sick. And it probably wouldn't have been that way had she been in an incubator at birth because she was two months early. Her lungs hadn't developed. Yeah. What happened to the <laughs> I think my uncle was buried in a tracksuit. I swear to goodness, it wouldn't surprise me if he was buried in a tracksuit. He was very big and very vivacious and very loud, but I don't think he ever got that level of feeling of success that he had as an Olympic star. The, f the, the three that was 1960 in Rome, Italy, and the bronze was 1956 in Melbourne, Australia. And the, my uncle's 1952 was Helsinki, Finland. So your uncle and, and uh, Wilma didn't compete they d No, they were on the same American team, but of course the men raced the men and the women raced the, the women. But my vision is that she just probably couldn't even speak to him because he was such a star. And she was 16. You know, and he, he was already graduated college, and he was older and that kind of thing. He, by the way, married my aunt, who's my father's sister. She is 4'10". He is 6'2". And they said that he shouldn't be running the fast races. Back then, they felt that shorter men should run those sprints. But he said, I really want to run the sprints, so they let him do it. And the other thing that was uh, working against him is when he was born, his, uh, he never met his father. He met his father two days before his father died. So even with all that happened to him, his father was never in the picture. And the only reason he met his father two days before he died is because his father called for him. And uh, he reluctantly went. But, and his mother died when he was two years old. So he was raised by an aunt and a grandmother who did not want him. So they constantly said, you are just like your father. You're going to be a deadbeat like your father. And they said it so much that he said it motivated him. So when he would run around the block faster and faster and faster, he would prove, to, he said, I'm going to prove to you. And he would say to them, I'm going to run, I'm going to run, I'm going to be a star, star runner. And they're like, no, you're not, you're wasting your time. 
And sometimes that kind of negative, negative negativity promotes motivation. Yes. Did her, did Rudolph, oh, so I had to figure that out. How did Rudolph, Wilma Rudolph have 21 children? His, hers, and mine. So her mother and father had eight together. And I don't know how the other, 13, 13, 13. <laughs> I majored in math, but once I started the storytelling, that mathematic went out the window. The other 13 were split among a previous marriage or assorted relationships. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I know. Like, how in the world do you have 21? And she wasn't the last one. There was one more after her. Behind you, yes. A suggested soundtrack? Yes, you hire me. You bring me all over the country and I tell the story. Wilma Rudolph, Rosa Parks, Ru Ruby Bridges, Little Rock Nine. I've got a whole series of stories on African-American heroes. And the reason I developed them, and I'll get your question next, the reason I developed them is because people asked. I was happy doing folk tales. And people said, well, it's Black History Month. Will you tell some of these stories? And Wilma was one of the first ones because I realized the connection to my family. So I wanted to learn about her. Yes. I don't, but on my website, lindagoram.com, there are 12 videos. And um, Rosa Parks, part of Rosa Parks is on there. Um, videos for children, for middle school-ish, and then for adults. So that particular one isn't. It's being recorded today, so it might be on there. Yes? When you, uh, as part of your research, I'm assuming you listen to, uh, when you can, recordings of the individual or videos where they're speaking. And if you do that, does that affect your delivery in any way if you're doing Rosa Parks? So the question is when I'm doing my, you know those people were not recorded? The question is if I'm doing my research and I hear a recording of those people, does that affect how I present their program? And as far as I know, there's no recording of Wilma talking, but she does have an autobiography. Or maybe it's a Autobiography help, you know, written with the aid of someone else. And so they do get an emotional content in that. And um, I, I know that adults get it. But I, when I do it with middle schoolers or high schoolers, they don't understand segregation. And they don't understand um, why it would be hard to, why couldn't they go to the hospital? They just don't. And aren't, I'm glad that they don't understand that because it's not the way we live now, you know. So... I try to put a lot of emotional content. When I tell the story of Rosa Parks, I tell it from the point of view of a 16-year-old who was kicked off, the bus driver, and then Rosa. So you hear three voices. So have you thought about doing a, a program on those women that worked in the space Oh, yeah, that's a good one. The, have I thought about doing a program on the women who work on the space program? I have. And I'll, it, it, you want to know the truth, the real honest-to-goodness truth? I don't start something unless someone says, will you do it and I'll pay you. <laughs> and there's my motivation for working on a story. So I've had, you know, I've had people say, could you do 100 years of black history in 45 minutes? Sure, you're going to pay me? I'll work on it. So I'm kind of a pimp. <laughs> I always say the pimp answers the phone. Sure, she'll do it. Hey, Linda, here's the next job for you. Okay. So... Any other questions? Yes. Oh. How Oh, that was the, the what her what her comment was is I didn't even know that. In 1960 Muhammad Ali fought on the at the Olympics. The fact that TV started to enter into the Olympics is what made the Olympics even bigger for more people. Because before that, you saw some pictures in the newspaper, you would hear about it, but to actually watch it on TV, you can only imagine how people were glued to their television sets and um, so excited to see Americans win. It was, it was a pretty awesome experience, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. The question is, when, when she went to Rome, how did they treat her in terms of segregation? Oh, they said, come to London, come here. She toured Europe before going back home. 
And this is the same thing that happened with the soldiers when they fought in the war and they were over there and everybody's like, yay, we love you, we love you, I don't care what color you are, we love you. And you go back home and you can't use a restroom. So that was the same kind of thing. Yeah. And what I loved about her is she, she constantly said in her work that, wrote in her work, that she was very proud to represent the United States. And everyone that I knew, even my father, when he represented the United States as a soldier, they all thought that their effort would help change the atmosphere. And it did. Just took a while. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people who, she, Josephine Baker, the question she said is Josephine Baker um, uh, wasn't successful here in the United States because of discrimination. She goes over to Europe and she's fabulous. And um, sh there's a, a friend of mine wrote a book about Josephine Baker. Uh, Patricia Hubie Powell wrote a book about her, a picture book, which is awesome. And another person I'm interested in writing about is, a, um, a, a, telling about is a, um, a cyclist named Major... Oh, shucks, I can't think of his last name. His nickname was Major something, and he was a cyclist. And m one of my sons is a cyclist, so I'm interested in that story, too. So we, we develop them as we're interested in them. Yes? This, oh, this was way, but you know what? That's why I'm glad you asked. This was way after the Civil War. And some people will say, well, if the Civil War was over and everybody was free, then what's the problem? Which is what it should have been. But it just wasn't, unfortunately. Unfortunately. OK, another story. So um, when I got married, uh, I got married 36 years ago. But I got my first apartment probably 38 or 9 years ago. And when I got my first apartment, my mother presented me with a box of doilies <laughs> made by my great-grandmother. And she presented it as if it was, on a, it was in a box, but you would have thought it was a silver platter. Linda, for you, for underneath your lamps, for underneath your candy dishes. I know you don't smoke, Linda, but if somebody comes by, you can put it underneath the ashtray. Like, I'm going to have an ashtray in my house, right? But my mother did. She had all these doilies. So she gave me the doily. And I thanked her and um, knew that, bless her heart, <laughs> that's a southern expression, I'm, I've adopted that, um, I would never, ever use them. But she told me a story, and I've used the story. She said, Sadie and Harry had been married for 50 years, and 50 years is a long time. And when you've been married for 50 years, everybody celebrates. And so it was that their three children and their seven grandchildren gave them a wonderful celebration of their life. And everybody came. It was a wonderful day. But a couple of weeks after that amazing celebration, Sadie took ill. Now, Sadie had never had any secrets from her husband for 50 years, except one. When they married, Sadie brought a little box into their house. And Sadie said to her husband, Harry, I love you to death, but don't ask me about the box. And she proceeded to take the box and put it up in their closet at the top. Now, for 50 years, that box had sat there. And, you know, in the beginning, Harry had looked at it like, you know, old pictures of somebody, you know, or mementos from an old boyfriend. Or, but then after a while, he knew his wife hate, loved him, so he ignored the box. But after Sadie got ill, well, it looked like Sadie wasn't going to survive. So one day, Sadie said to Harry as she lay in her bed, Harry, get the box down. And believe it or not, he said, what box? He truly had forgotten about it. And, and she said, get, get the box down. And he brought that box down, and he handed it to his wife. And as he handed it to her, he remembered that, well, when, he first, when she first brought that box into the house, she was young and had long, flowing brown hair. And, and she had a twinkle in, her, twinkle in her eye, and she had dimples in her cheeks. And when he looked at his wife of 50 years, well, the smile was still there, and the dimples were a little wrinkled now, and the eyes still showed love. And... He said, yeah, this box has sat there, 
And you have aged and I have aged, but we have aged together and life is good. She said, yeah, Harry, life is good. I want you to know what's in the box. <laughs> so he lifted up the top and he saw two doilies. I don't understand. They're, they're beautiful. They were sitting on top of a folded piece of um, uh, tissue paper. He said, I, they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful, but I don't understand. She says, oh, Harry, <laughs> when I married you, my mother told me I should never argue with you. She said, if I was ever upset with you, I should find a quiet spot and crochet a doily. <laughs> Fifty years and two doilies. No wonder I love you. Sadie, you're, you're the best. Look under the tissue, Harry. He lifted up the tissue. There were three thick stacks of $100 bills. I don't understand. Well, that's the money I made selling the doilies. <laughs> One more short story. So um, how did I research that one? You know what it is? My mother had told me the story when she gave me the box. But I was young. I didn't pay much attention, you know? And so as a storyteller, I'm like, she gave, because I found the box. We moved. We lived in Chicago for 20 years. And we moved into Raleigh, North Carolina last year. So I'm sorting things out, and I find the box. OK. What was the story she told me? Google is wonderful, people. So I Google, and I find a story. And I'm like, that reminds me of the story mommy told me. So I just, you know, Linda-sized it a little bit and decided to share it. So one more story about love, because I am in love with my husband of 36 years. Why? It's all about tongue. T-O-N-G-U-E. Y'all haven't had tongue in a while, have you? There was a king, and this king, he had everything that money could buy um, except a wife. And money cannot buy a wife. We all know that. So the king decided to put aside his kingly duties. It was a hard job that he had, 24-7 working as king. He said, I'm going to put aside my kingly duties and go out into the kingdom and find a suitable bride. And he found her right away, love at first sight in his eyes. And she said, no, I got to, I got to get to know you first. So he stopped that job, and he spent Days which turned into weeks, which turned into months, courting that young woman. And eventually, she accepted his offer of marriage. At the wedding, everyone agreed they were the perfect couple. Oh, she was beautiful. She had smooth, beautiful skin, as smooth as a baby's behind. She had soft, flowing hair. She had bright eyes. She had a sparkle about her. When she laughed, anyone nearby would laugh with her. He was just the right height. Tall, but not too tall. You know what I mean? He had a little mustache that was perfectly trimmed. He had a beard that was perfectly trimmed. He had thick, strong biceps. He had a washboard stomach. He had long, thick thighs and a nice round. OK, this is my husband I'm describing. <laughs> they, they knew they were the perfect couple. After the wedding, he brought his new queen home to his palace. He gave her everything that money could buy. He gave her shoes and clothing and servants. He hired seven servants to be there just for her. And after she had all of these things and people to take care of her, he went back to his job of running the kingdom. Well, she was happy at first. I mean, she was living the life. But then she began to walk the palace moaning and groaning. She began to tear up. She began to weep and moan. She started, started crying with, for no reason. No one knew what was wrong with her. Things got worse. She started watching television far too many times a day. Uh, housewives of this country and that country and the other country. If you're not depressed before watching those shows, you will be depressed afterward. And when it got really bad, she was watching Dr. Phil on a regular basis. <laughs> the king didn't know what was wrong with her. 
and no one else did. But he heard about a young woman in his kingdom who was married to a farmer. He, she was the same age as his wife, and he, she and the farmer had been married for many years. So he summoned that farmer to his palace, and he said, tell me, what is it you do for your wife? I had a beautiful wife. I heard yours is as beautiful as the day you married her, but mine, she's a mess. What's your secret? And the farmer bowed before the king, my secret, your highness, I give my wife tongue. Ah, tongue, I get it. You're dismissed. Go away. And the king summoned the royal chef. My wife shall have tongue meat morning, noon, and night. And so it was. She was served tongue meat morning, noon, and night. She had eggs. Uh, she had um, scrambled eggs and tongue. She had snake tongue and fries. She had tongue and grits. She had roasted tongue. She had stewed tongue. She had tongue pot pie. Think about how many tongues. Chicken tongue pot pie. How many tongues does it make to make a chicken pot pie? Now, I don't need to tell you she got more depressed than depressing. And the king, well, he, didn't, he wasn't happy with this result, so he decided that he would summon the farmer back to his palace, and he said, you lied to me. For your insubordination, you shall exchange wives with me. It's a king thing. I don't understand it, but they could do it back then. So the farmer had no choice but to take the queen home and bring his beautiful, happy wife to become the new queen. Now, the king gave her everything that money could buy, including the servants and the tongue meat, and she went downhill even faster. So the king decided that he wanted his old queen back. It's a phrase you may have heard, make new queens but keep the old. One is silver but the other is gold. I'm sorry. I have to do that sometimes. So he sent his, 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 his servant down to the, to the farmer's house to bring back the queen. And when the queen saw, heard what was requested of her, she said, I don't think so. I like it here. And so the king got on his horse, his high horse, went down to the farmer's house. Before he even got to the house, he could hear laughter from his former queen. He had not heard such laughter in a long time. And he was going to bang through the door, but when he heard that laughter, he decided to knock. And when she opened the door, he saw that face that he had seen before. Because you see, even though she had to work so hard on the farm, she had to tend to the animals, she had to cook and clean. But every time her husband would come home from working in the fields, well, they would talk and they would cooked together sometimes. And when they ate, they didn't eat at a long table with a chandelier and a candelabra in the middle. They would sit side by side, thighs rubbing. Y'all haven't done that in a while either, have <laughs> And every night with the farmer, after they ate, they would go off into the countryside and they would walk and they would talk and they would sing. And every night before they went to sleep, they would raise their glasses, not even glass, wooden glasses, in toast to the strange world that had brought them together, but the world they were determined to make good. So when the king saw her, she told him all this about her life. And that's when the king understood what it means to have tongue in your relationship. You can serve tongue with eggs or grits or fries. You can make it into a roast or a stew or even a pot pie. But the kind of tongue that will work its magic the best and the most is not served on a platter, but shared like a loving toast. Thank you all very much for coming out. I appreciate it.